Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. Today we're talking about Tim Keller's announcement that he will be departing Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm assistant editor at Christianity Today. I'm joined by Mark Alley who just came back into town. Yes. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. We're glad that you're here. Who is joining us today? Uh, Mark Dever. He's the senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and president of Nine Marks, a Christian ministry he co-founded, quote, in an effort to build biblically faithful churches in America, end quote. It's a resource, uh, at least the online resource I've used periodically to kind of get my head around some issues that churches face. So I appreciate that, that ministry. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Morgan. It's good to be with you guys. It's good to be with you, too. Can I just ask you, where is the name of Nine Marks from? A book that I wrote about 15 years ago called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Okay, so it doesn't have any correlation to like the Gospel of Mark. It does not, but hopefully it would be consistent with what you'd find in the Gospel of Mark. And and it is. <laughs> Morgan, it's going to be one of those kind of podcasts. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, then I was like, well, is he talking about the Gospel of Mark meaning like his name? After I said that, then I was getting or really confused. Are these eight other apocryphal Gospels of Mark that Mark Dever is uh, promoting? What is going on here? Yeah. Well, also, did he name the website after himself? No. <laughs> <laughs> Truth is, we used to call it, we originally called it Center for Church Reform. Oh, but gosh. pastors were getting in trouble with their congregations for going to a website whose name suggested there was something wrong with their church. <laughs> it's a simple, positive name. And we thought, wow, the book is working okay. Well, just nine marks. Yeah, it's a much better name. Cool. Well, thank you for that brief little history there. All right. Well, let's get into our discussion today. After nearly 30 years, New York City pastor Tim Keller will step down as the senior pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which is located in Manhattan. You may be familiar with the Gospel Coalition, which is the Reformed site that he co-founded, his books, The Meaning of Marriage, The Prodigal God, or The Reason for God, or his recent interview with Nicholas Kristof of The New York Times, because Tim Keller has a, a pretty national profile in many ways. His church has also been written about by The New York Times several years ago. In his new role, Keller will teach full-time in a partner program between Reformed Theological Seminary and Redeemer City to City Church Planting Network. So Keller told his church on Sunday, Kathy and I are not going anywhere. New York is our home and you are our people. We're not leaving New York or the Fellowship of Redeemer. I'm becoming a teacher trainer. There's going to have to be a dramatic increase in church leaders in the city if we're going to start all these churches, which is kind of what the goal of the City to City Church Planting Network is. So Redeemer Presbyterian is currently composed of three campuses and Keller's departure will coincide with each one of those churches becoming their own independent church. While they will still partner together with programs, they will be their own congregations with their own leaders and elders, and these churches will in turn plant churches in three more locations. Currently, more than 5,000 people attend this Presbyterian church. The transition follows a vision plan that Redeemer put in place 20 years ago that Keller is also leaving at the same time as kind of a side effect of this plan that they put in place. 
As Kathy Keller told CT earlier this week, this is not primarily a secession plan. It is a vision for not being a mega church. And her words are something that we definitely want to get into. So, Mark, I'm just wondering for our gut check, which is the time where you and I kind of give our rapid fire responses to this news. Yeah, how are you feeling or how this news made sense to you? Well, it didn't surprise me he was retiring. I knew he was getting up there in retirement age. But did, what did surprise me was the uh, the accolades that came as a result of his retirement. It's the type of accolades you generally don't hear about someone until, frankly, they die. But I think it's appropriate we that we celebrate people now at their retirement because often uh, it's another 25, 30 years before they pass away. And by that time, no one remembers the great things that they did. And Keller's obviously had a very powerful national, maybe even international ministry, and it's well worth our time to read about the various people who just think he's done an incredible job. Okay, I will file this away for when to throw Mark a retirement party. <laughs> yeah, well, when I retire, I think people will say, thank God he's out of the building. <laughs> we can finally get some work Not done. Not this person. I'll speak for myself here. All right, my gut check. I, I don't think I was like necessarily surprised by the news, but I do think it's interesting that he is going to be staying at his church. I experienced a pastoral transition at a church that I attended a couple years ago, and the same thing happened there where the senior pastor stepped down, a new senior pastor came up, and he also stayed at his church. I, that's just a dynamic that I'm interested in because many times when people depart, they end up leaving the church. Did that work in your situation? Yes. Yeah, so in this case, the senior pastor had a ministry that he was doing in addition to running the church. And so he focuses primarily on growing that ministry and he speaks from time to time. So he's not absent from the church at all, but it's very clear that he has a project that he's pouring his time and energy in. So people don't necessarily think that he's trying to sway what's going on there. Yeah. Okay. Because my experiences of that rarely works, but it depends on a lot of different situations, of course. Mark. Ever, we would like to hear your thoughts on all of this too. In particular, we're I want to go back to Kathy Keller's comments. Again, she said, This is not primarily a secession plan. It is a vision for not being a mega church. So to me, the comments suggest that Keller's transition was um, designed to create a sustainable, moderately sized church community and not a mega church. What do you make of her remarks? Uh, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I've heard uh, Kathy and Tim talk about this before. I think this is what they've long planned. I think this is what the session, the elders there at Redeemer have long planned. Uh, so I was in no way surprised and was uh, thankful for their faithfulness in ministry over the years there and uh, excited at this as a more constructive model than what is often done where a large congregation is built very much around the personality of the preacher. And when that preacher is gone, the whole thing kind of dissolves. I think Tim has been very typically wise and humble in the way he's done this. Do you know very much about the genesis of this plan and how it was put in place? I didn't know. Well, maybe I did know. Sir, I talked to Tim about this for years, and so I'm aware that this is what they were doing. I think the number of congregations may have varied depending on how many meetings they were having at the time. But basically this idea of them dissolving into sustainable Presbyterian churches, so to use Presbyterian language, particularizing and then continuing on as separate congregations has been the plan from very early on in his days there. And I think all it's done is slowly over time it's evolved. I think they were waiting until they saw uh, indigenous leadership in each one of the congregations growing up and possibly uh, had a clear idea of who could succeed him as the main preacher in each of the congregations. But I, it's no change of plan. It's been the plan as they've advertised for, for 20 years or more. Now, this is Presbyterian Church in America, PCA. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Now, does that, well, you're a Baptist, so maybe you wouldn't know, but it strikes me as odd that a pastor in that system could actually pick his successor. Is that what's going on here? Or 
No, I, well, first of all, I think um, I'm not PCA, but I think the PCA rules are different than, say, the PCUSA rules, which would, I think, be more restrictive. I think the PCA does have greater uh, allowance for assistant ministers uh, beginning to serve in churches where they had served. But I don't know if each of those three congregations already has a man in mind and or serving. I just know that's been the goal to move in that direction. That's not just Tim's goal. That was the session's goal. Okay, well, let me follow up on just that. I mean, what's your view of that, uh, the idea of a pastor appointing, naming, raising up his successor? The the uh, argument against it is that it just retains the current ethos of the church and doesn't allow the church to actually step in and think about what it wants to do if it wants to do something differently. Uh, it obviously depends on the situation. I, I, my basic take on it is that it's very healthy to have him involved, but the church certainly should address any things that they think have been awry or wrong. I don't think it's wise for the, the minister to be required to have nothing to do with it in the sense that, you know, that there might be some some evil nepotism or, you know, old boys network involved that's going to be ungodly. I think that there can be a frank mentoring of others. I, I think like we saw with John Piper and Jason Meyer at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, where it's, uh, or with David Platt and Matt Mason down at the Church of Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama. If there's been a healthy ministry it makes sense that one of the things that minister would desire to do would be to make sure that the congregation is moving in a good direction. Now, that doesn't mean he he just single-handedly names the successor, the pastor, but it makes sense that he would have a shaping influence in that if it has been a good and healthy ministry. Okay, and let me clarify, every question that I have is not an attempt to second-guess what Keller or his church is doing. I'm more interested in the larger theoretical questions as they apply to churches nationwide. So Yeah, and, and that's how I was answering that remark. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So one thing that I felt when I was reading Kathy's comments is that she seems to suggest that megachurch demands a charismatic leader or to put in a way the presence of a charismatic leader makes a megachurch a natural byproduct. Mark, would you agree with that? Yes. If a pastor is given charismatic leadership gifts by God, divinely given, shouldn't he use those gifts to grow the church as large as he can? Maybe, but maybe not. Okay, let's say that Jesus doesn't come back for a while. Now, he may come back today. He may come back before this podcast is broadcast. But let's say that he doesn't come back for a little while. And part of my gifts I could use to build a, the biggest building I could possibly build to fill it with the most people I could possibly fill. The question is, is, is that necessarily, straightforwardly, the best use of whatever gifts the Lord has given me? And to me, the answer to that is no. It could be. But what to me seems more prudent is, can I build up a culture in a church where uh, leadership is encouraged, where young preachers are raised up, where a, a generation of people who will be preaching to far more than would ever be in any one church will be encouraged, instructed, empowered? That's what I think is probably a more canny view of Great Commission, where we're promised Christ's presence with us through his spirit, with his authority, until the end of the age. Well, if the age is happening you know, tomorrow or 10 years from now, maybe build that biggest building. But if there's a longer term, another generation in view, then I think the multiplication of the senior pastor through other competent and gifted pastors is probably a much more canny and wise use of his decades he has than simply building a large place where his congregation meets. Though I'm not opposed to large churches, I want to be careful here. I just think that the idea that the immediate evident numbers that can hear any one person preach should not be seen as therefore the largest or best use of his gifts that there could be. So you're saying in order to kind of, quote unquote, avoid a megachurch, you have to intentionally 
raise up leaders and then in many ways give them opportunities to serve, which may be planting more churches? Well, that'd be part of it. I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't want to try to avoid a megachurch. So Kathy's language there, I appreciate it. It's, it's a bit provocative. In the Book of Acts, we have a megachurch. In Spurgeon's Tabernacle, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, we had a megachurch. I think uh, I'm out here right now preaching at John MacArthur's, and that, that's a megachurch. So I think there are megachurches that I really like and think have done a good job. Uh, there are megachurches that uh, I don't like so much, that I don't think have done a good job, that we're not going to name now, even in a gut check. <laughs> but but I, I think I think we can all agree there are some that have uh, have given a name for megachurch that would make someone like Kathy, who's very thoughtful, use that as a negative stereotype. So so I don't think there's a right or wrong size for all churches. I don't think all churches should be 20 people. I don't think all churches should be 3,000 people. Uh, I think the Lord uses different size congregations to do different size things. Having said that, I do think there are abuses that are typically more common uh, in a megachurch setting. And by abuses, I don't necessarily mean terribly proactive abuse of one individual by another. But I mean there are gifts that are misused or not used sometimes in a large situation where a more consumeristic mentality has created a gigantic uh, meeting place that people come to to get what they want, but then do that very much as privatized consumers and then sort of head out into the world. And I don't think that's what we want to try to see built up in local churches. Just to put another experience on your point, I did a study of megachurches for a book I wrote, for a chapter of a book I wrote, and uh, discovered that, yeah, a lot of them fall into the stereotypical pattern of being places where people go to feel good and where a very thin gospel is preached, and it's more about moral, moral therapeutic deism. But then I found a, a fair number of churches in which pastors were preaching a pretty thick gospel week after week. So I don't, I, I do, I do agree with you that I don't think we can sweep uh, megachurches off the table with one pass of the hand. Yeah, I also think just another curve to throw at you on this one, maybe the idea that putting money into buildings is a bad idea. I think that's a bad idea. So just to be clear, I think it's a bad idea that putting putting money into buildings is a bad idea. <laughs> you said just to be clear at the beginning of that. that oh yeah, double, so double negatives, man. So the put it positively, big buildings can be a, a good thing. Yeah, or at least just buildings and all. I think. Sometimes leaders of a church will say, hey, we're growing. It wouldn't it be cheaper just to have two services. Well, it would be, but what if those two services are really more kind of like two churches? Um, I think there might be something to actually just doing what generations before us did, which is, you know, build a bigger building. Just find the money, you know, save the money. I, I'm very thankful our, our church just turned 139 years old on uh, Monday of this week, so two days ago. And uh, they built three different buildings in their first 30 years of existence as a church, the last one that they built in 1911, 1912 is still the one that we're using today. So those dear saints put aside that money. And, you know, we have a congregation right now of over a thousand people gathering every Sunday morning together, 300 and some odd children being served. And it's a wonderful center for gospel work there on Capitol Hill. And it wouldn't be working in the same way if those saints had not purchased that property, built that building, sacrificed to do it. So I I don't want to attack mega churches. I just want to say there are some problems with very large churches. And as we see them working out in our country right now, they are often they're often encouraging a kind of privatized consumeristic, uh, as Mark just said, moral therapeutic deism, you know, where, where God is seen as the, the one to cause prosperity in us in any way we may desire it, as opposed to us taking up our cross and following Christ. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. 
Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. The concern I do have about our, a megachurch sometimes has to do with uh, the architecture itself. Uh, they, are de- they are often deliberately designed to just blend in with the rest of the architecture in the community, when in fact that strikes me as a unique opportunity for the church to be a public witness to, to Christ. So the example would be in the Middle Ages, the largest buildings in a community were the church, which suggested the community's highest priority. Today, the largest buildings in any city are businesses or uh, stadiums. And I think it's important that the church have an architectural presence, an architectural witness that this is what we believe has some substance and grounding and ha- should have a public witness. So I don't know if you would agree with that, but that's where I come at it. Yeah, Mark, I, I think I agree with that. I also agree that the internal architecture of the church matters and that I would encourage our churches to be Protestant. That is, I would encourage them not to be like a TV studio with everything coming from the front and the congregation largely passive, you know, passing under the spigot of what, however many services or whatever is produced from the front, because the front is really the church or the holy people. Uh, I think when the congregation gathers, Protestants historically understood the Bible to teach that the congregation is whole, the Laos is the congregation, and therefore uh, natural light, not uh, darkness and then bright lights up front, and calm down the amount of noise and volume coming from up front, whether it's a classical organ and choir or loud electronic band or something else, uh, and stop it with the acoustical tiles eating up the sound of the congregation so that we just hear what's coming from up front. Let's Let's recover the experience of congregational worship, whether that's 20 people or 200 people or 2,000. I think it's interesting that you guys are talking about the architecture, because actually when I think of mega churches, I know that's not always a correlation, but I often think of multi-site churches. And in multi-site churches, many of the multi-sites do not actually have their own campus. You know, they're working, they're in existing places like schools um, or community centers that they're worshiping or, or sometimes even other church buildings. What do you, how do you feel as a Baptist about the um, symbolism at the either at the front or somewhere in the congregation. I mean, some megachurches deliberately avoid uh, putting crosses in their churches to make it more user-friendly to seekers, or they just have the organ pipes in the front. The cross should be in the church in our hearts and in the Bible. But I'm more of a, again, a, more of a Protestant with that one. I'm, I'm not going to prefer the use of, of that symbol. Oh, that's interesting. I don't think it's wrong, but I... I'm with Cromwell. Give me the horses. I'm going to stable them in the church building. I want to make a. I want to make a point here that this is a space that we use, but it is a. a it's a. It's a meeting house, and the church is the people. Okay. Well, as an Anglican, I can't help but disagree. But <laughs> you have a more effective ministry than I do. So what can I say? Well, and you need to know a lot of the first generation Anglicans. I'm just channeling what they said, man. Okay. I know there were some later Romanizing Anglicans who came in and changed things around, but if you go before 1662, got a lot of guys saying exactly what I'm saying. That's where I learned it from. Yeah, they're low church Anglicans. I don't know if they're real Anglicans. (laughs) They're the ones who died at the stake to establish the church. (laughs) Yeah, well. And we would happily have them preach in our Baptist church, brother. Okay. All right. Mark Allen needs to work on his comebacks. That's what I've decided. (laughs) I always have to let the guests have the last say, and then I talk about them afterwards the podcast is over. We want to take a moment to point out that Quick to Listen is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. 
We here at CT do our best to offer redemptive yet honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the church and culture here and in 2017. As a subscriber, you get 10 award-winning print issues every year, full web access to ChristianityToday.com, which is awesome. I'm going to be putting some Christian history articles up for Women's History Month, and you'll be able to read all of those, and you'll get the tablet and PDF editions of each issue. To get a year-long subscription, go to orderct.com slash quick to listen. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen, and this is the biggest way to let us know that you are supporting and down with the podcast. All right, I want to get back between this personality-driven tension that we're kind of talking about right now. And I'm just wondering if we can get into some of the ways that churches can be influential and bring a lot of people in and also work systemically against being a personality-driven church. I will say one thing that I found really interesting about Redeemer is if, if you went on the website and you wanted to come to church at Redeemer on a given Sunday, they would never put on the website which campus that you that Keller would be speaking at that day. He would often be speaking at one of the campuses. They just were not going to tell you. So you couldn't just chase him around and follow where he went rather than go to your own campus that you were a part of. But yeah, but I, I don't know if there's, Mark, if you see any other ways that churches can be more proactive in fighting this tendency that you talked about earlier of creating systems based on a person rather than the good of the church overall. The idea of the preacher today is a kind of after dinner speaker slash comedian is really unhelpful to raising up other preachers. Because I think some of us are given larger personalities and we talk naturally and fluently and easily. And there could be people who don't love Jesus, but who like a guy who just talks, who fill up our churches and they can be centered around us. So I think preachers have to be a little more Lloyd-Jones-like, a little more careful about their personal illustrations and how much of their own personal variety of humor they use when they're preaching. So I would be contra a lot of what's common in preaching today. And by the way, I think Tim Keller's done a, a pretty good job of that. I also think that we can try to deliberately get other people in our pulpits preaching on Sundays when we are there. So I may be leading the service or sitting in the front row, but I'm listening to others on our staff or even visiting preachers like a, like an Anglican Archbishop, Mark, when Peter uh, Jensen came to preach for us, the Archbishop of Sydney. Oh, you are ecumenical. Very good. All right. Yeah. So, so in our church, out of 52 Sundays a year, I will probably preach on Sunday morning about half the time, maybe a little more than that. I'll be there almost all the time. Uh, but part of that is to make sure the congregation is used to hearing God's Word from other people. Okay, let me uh, make two comments. One is I'm 120% behind the idea that pastors should use fewer, if any, personal illustrations. I wrote a, an article about that in Leadership some time ago because of its abuses, but it's a pet peeve of mine. But let me just take it from the parishioner's point of view. I'm coming to visit uh, your church which is known as Mark Dever's Church by many people, whether you like it or not. So I'm coming to Mark Dever's Church, and he's not going to be—there's only a 50% chance he's going to be in the pulpit. Ah, I'm feeling like you've been gifted with—and I will agree, you have been gifted with preaching. I I attended one of your services, and I buckled my seatbelt preparing for a 45-minute sermon that I was going to have to endure for— professional reasons and found myself enthralled. It was an exposition of Genesis 1 to 3. So you do have a marvelous preaching gift, and it does strike me that it robs, if I may argue this point, it robs the parishioner of hearing your gift if you're not in the pulpit more. Yeah, but but Mark, who cares about that? I'm going to be dead soon. The Holy Spirit gives a lot of people. you know. So if, if they learn to happily receive God's Word from others who are learning to preach by the opportunities they have in our pulpit with our congregation, I think that's a win. That's a win for okay. That's a win for your idea of what the church should be like, but it's not a win for the person who is 
coming to hear... Now, I agree. The person coming to hear you preach, that's less than noble motives. I'm totally with you, though, because at my house church that I go to, we have people who have varying degrees of preaching ability, and we've had students that have been in college when they have preached. Sometimes their sermon is half an hour too long because they don't know what to do, and that's that's the message that I get on Sundays, is, is regardless of what they're going to be teaching. Okay. In, in sympathy to both Morgan and Mark, I do think that the, the guy who's uh, the senior pastor of the church should exercise some care and quality control. So I intend there never to be a bad sermon preached from our pulpit. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but that's my intention. And so far, I would have to say, I think we've had a much better track record with the guys who we've had preach who are on staff training to be pastors than we have with the folks we've invited from outside to preach. I'm actually encouraged to think that a pastor can see from within the congregation raised up preachers of God's word who will be useful and helpful and edifying to the congregation. So I'm not just saying you throw anybody up there. And I'll, to be fair, I've, I've been in a church where I actually looked forward to the senior pastor not preaching and one of his associate pastors preaching because the associate pastor was a better preacher. So there you go. But but see, I just want to, I want the members of my church not to really care about the better thing. Exactly. No, I, I get that. Good yeah. and the accurate. And just trust that Blake, who preached last Sunday at our church, will have just a different take on things, a different personality, and the Holy Spirit will use that in a way somewhat distinct from how he's going to use me. But the gospel will be clear with both preachers, and you'll 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 leave edified. I have long taken tried to take the advice of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer on this, is that he believes that when a person stands to preach, uh, there is a word of God for them in that sermon even if it's just a single sentence or a phrase, and that we should be not evaluating whether this sermon is homiletically excellent or not, or whatever, but we should be listening for the word that is meant for us to hear. So, And you think of the way the primitive Methodist preacher that one day, who was just a, a deacon, I think, because the snowstorm in Colchester, in Essex in England, just preached when Spurgeon came in and didn't even mean to go to that church. A young man understood himself to be unconverted, and the guy gets up and from Isaiah just says, Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Young fellow, you're looking kind of poorly today. Look unto Christ. Look unto Christ. And the Lord used that to convert him. Wow. I, yeah. And I've also been in another church that had a teaching team, and they were very clear that they had a teaching team. And so you would hear from everybody on the teaching team throughout the year. Every All the members of the teaching team were always available in the foyer afterwards and greeting people and talking to them. And I guess I always felt like it was like the pastoral staff rather than all the spotlight being on the senior pastor. I think that goes a long way in kind of helping people associate more than just, or even just not, not see people as a star. Like they may see the pastor as the boss, but not the star. It's also good for the congregation, particularly if they do love me and appreciate my preaching, to see me learning from others. Mm-hmm. Is Capitol uh, Hill Baptist a, a megachurch? I, I, I didn't, you, you run CT, man. I mean, I thought the definition was like 2,000 people. Exactly. So you tell me. Yeah, I know. We have, we have about 1,010 members. Okay. So you're just a really a large church. Some people would say that Capitol Hill Baptist is a personality-driven church in the sense that a lot of people refer to it as, I'm going to Mark, Mark Devers Church when I visit in Washington this year. So you work against that by sharing the pulpit. What are other ways in which you work against that? Because I'm sure you find that appalling that people would call the church Mark Devers Church. I hope you would find it appalling. If not, you're off the podcast. <laughs> okay, well, you throw me off the podcast. I don't find it appalling. I understand how human nature works, how people use language. I, of course, understand it not to be my church, but I know they mean that's the church where Mark normally preaches, so I'm, I'm not too worried about that. Okay. I, share, I think I share your theological concern. I'm just a little bit less alarmed at the use of English. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the ways I try to work against that, I do not moderate our members' meetings. One of our other pastors does that. I do not chair our elders' meetings. One of the other pastors 
do that. Uh, I do not speak anytime I can avoid it in our elders' meetings. I encourage elders when they vote against me. I often lose votes in our elders' meetings. So I do everything I can to try to raise the prominence of other people because naturally, charismatically, my prominence there is high. I came as the senior pastor when there were 130 people. They were mainly elderly. You know, I buried them all. So there are only about 20 people who've been members of that church longer than I have been now. Uh, I've been there 23 years, almost 24 years. And that means I'm going to have a certain amount of natural or charismatic influence, which I'm fine with that being informal, but I want formally there to be you know clear structures in place when we're a congregational church. So there are, I'd say, some very clear structures in place that would limit any influence me or anyone in the senior pastoral office would have. I also want there to be a, a kind of uh, humility that marks me and my leadership that doesn't mind being criticized or contradicted, and that encourages brothers and sisters that will do that in a, in a good spirit themselves, and will try to make it clear that we're all learning together from God's Word. As a Baptist, how does succession work there? Total chaos. <laughs> I thought that was a Pentecostal way of doing things. Well, I think Baptists and Pentecostals may be similar to that. You know, Morgan, there's not, there's not, as a congregational church, there's not a playbook that we have to use. So uh, I think in, in my situation, if the Lord tarries, what would happen is the elders will be a search committee, and the elders will look, I assume, within our congregation and outside the congregation for someone to bring to the congregation, to nominate to the congregation to come and serve as the senior pastor. That would at least be according to what our Constitution says. Do they mostly look externally to where the church is? I w- no, I wouldn't think so. I think they would begin internally and then move externally. That's exactly what the two examples I mentioned just a little bit ago of megachurches that have had transitions recently. David Platt transitioning to Matt Mason at Church of Brook Hills and John Piper transitioning to Jason Meyer uh, in Minneapolis at Bethlehem Baptist. Both of those were large churches with a prominent senior pastor that actually ended up choosing someone already inside their congregations. All right. For the last question, just what to you are the most pressing lessons of Keller's pastoral leadership at Redeemer for evangelical churches in particular? Well, I think his plan to uh, see the church not just be one large entity that would need more of a personality in the middle of it, but to be more sustainable sized communities was a typically wise and humble plan. And I think that glorifies the Lord and I hope will prosper uh, people in Manhattan hearing the gospel for uh, for decades to come. Do you know where that vision came from? You know, I, I assume it's just a pretty typical historic vision. That's generally how Christians have thought about churches. That's not a, it's not an unusual thing. Yeah, I guess it, it just does feel a little bit more unusual in this case, particularly because, I mean, he's devoting himself to planting lots of churches after this. Again, like, obviously he will be influencing this, but his name in some ways won't necessarily be associated with any single thing anymore, you know, and, and again, it's finding it's him finding a way to kind of lead in the background. Yeah. That's what we pray you'll be able to do successfully. All right. Well, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when people share something that is bringing them joy this week and also where they can be found on social media. Mark Dever, would you like to go first? I love meeting with thousands of other preachers at this conference and hearing people about God's work all over the world. I just met with two pastors from South Africa this morning. I'm going to listen to a pastor from Scotland in just a few minutes. So yeah, it's just exciting to hear what the Lord's doing. Can you tell us where you're at again? The Shepherd's Conference at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, Greater Los Angeles. Where can people find you online? 
catbap.org. They can also go to ninemarks.org. Uh, Twitter, yes, I am. They can just look up Mark Dever. I don't remember my Twitter handle, but there it is. It's the one that looks like he's a preacher in D.C. Okay, everyone, we will link to it in the show information. All right, Mark. Yes, my precious moment was four or five days long. I was on the Arkansas River in southern Colorado with my son fly fishing, trying to fool stupid trout to take an artificial fly. Were you successful? Somewhat successful. It's a hard time of year to fish. Uh, and as usual, my son was more successful than his father. But that's okay. I've learned humility through it. Like, what do you do with the trout, though, when you catch them? Uh, it's all catch and release. Okay. We just make them suffer for a while. Then they can depend on the Lord more. <laughs> and we put them back in the river. You really don't end up eating any of them? No. It's more and more becoming a custom, especially in trout fishing, to do catch and release. Were you guys camping? Or how did you... No, my son, who has a very nice job, makes good money. And gets lots of hotel points because of it. So we stayed in a nice Marriott. Cool. So you just drove down to the river every day? Yeah. It was about 45 minutes from the hotel in Puebla. That sounds so nice. And just be outside all day long. Yes, it was nice to be outside, even though it was a little windy and a little cold at times. But there were there were moments when I just reflected that uh, our God is a gracious creator. Just to be in that in that atmosphere was wonderful. Mark, where can people find you online? I am the producer of a newsletter called The Galley Report, which can be found at christianitytoday.com slash The Galley Report. You can either read it there or subscribe and get it in your email box every Friday. All right. I'm going to go see the Warriors play the Bulls tomorrow night, around Thursday night for all of our listeners. And this, this is kind of a precious moment, but it's also kind of sad because Kevin Durant, who plays for the Warriors, got hurt in Tuesday's game, so he will not be playing. But I have only been to an NBA game one time. And the Warriors are my team in their town. Have you been here in Chicago? I have been to, I've watched college basketball at the United Center. But I've I never say, seen NBA so basketball. you know that if you're, you may be way up high and you may need binoculars to see the court, right? I actually probably, yeah, I feel like that's like a guarantee. It's actually really, I mean, it's fun to be there for the atmosphere, but you end up just watching the screen. They have those like four dimensional yeah, screens right. that mm -hmm. you just, no, I've been there. I don't yeah. think that counts as four dimensional, but they have a four panel screen and you just end up kind of watching that. But whatever. Well, I've seen the Warriors, which will be cool. All right. And everyone, you guys can follow me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. And that is on Twitter or Instagram as well. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today. And you can find our other podcast by searching iTunes for Christianity Today. Remember to head to orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe for our lowest price. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Alred. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you like the show, please, please, please make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. That is the biggest way that you tell us that you like it. We will see you all next week. Bye.